we do that on the historical sermon. So as you can imagine, there has been editing done to this sermon, and it was preached in the 1700s, and I've also taken the liberty to change some of the language, not the meaning. You will hear 1700s because it's a sermon from the 1700s, but where was necessary, uh, some of those words have been changed to serve us today. Well, as, as Brian said, it's my voice, Samuel Hopkins' sermon, but Romans 7 is God's. And we know that He can revive us. We trust and expect that He'll revive us according to His Word. So if you'll turn with me to Romans chapter 7, we will read the sermon text. I will pray briefly and then preach. Romans chapter 7, verse 7, is the sermon text. So Grace Church, beloved friends, hear the Word of the living God. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Well, may God add His blessing to the reading of His Word and let's seek His face briefly again before the Word comes. O oh God, we join our hearts with that of the psalmist who prayed, incline our hearts to Your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish Your Word in the hearts of Your servant as that which produces reverence for You. Holy Spirit, lead us to the glory of Christ that we may see Him and be changed. We pray this in His name. Amen. There is no need of entering into a critical consideration of the context in order for us to see what is the truth here given by St. Paul and to which now I stand before you to lead the attention of this audience in this present discourse. Paul here tells us how he came to the knowledge of sin by the law. That is, by the knowledge of the law. There was no other possible way or medium whereby he could get the knowledge of sin. Therefore, the plain and important truth contained in these words is the knowledge of God's law is absolutely necessary in order to have the knowledge of sin. The knowledge of God's law is absolutely necessary in order to have the knowledge of sin. Well, in discoursing on this proposition, I propose to consider with you three points. First, what we are to understand by the law. Second, why and in what sense the knowledge of this law is necessary in order to have a knowledge of sin. And third, I will close with some remarks, some applications, which will be naturally suggested by the view we shall have of this subject. So let us consider first point number one. What we are to understand by the law. 
of the law by which is the knowledge of sin, the following general definition may be given. It's a long definition, so I will read it twice. It is the eternal rule of righteousness which is essential to the being and glory of God's moral government and kingdom and is, in a sense, the foundation of it. Pointing out and declaring the duty of rational creatures or moral agents as to what is fit and proper to be required and obtaining the rule of God's conduct towards them as their moral governor. Once again, It is the eternal rule of righteousness which is essential to the being and glory of God's moral government and kingdom and is, in a sense, the foundation of it. Pointing out and declaring the duty of rational creatures or moral agents as to what is fit and proper to be required of them and obtaining the rule of God's conduct towards them as their moral governor. Well, if the knowledge of sin is to be obtained in no way but by the knowledge of God's law, then it is of the highest importance to us that we should not make a mistake here, but clearly understand what the law is. Here let it be observed that this law respects all the powers and faculties of creatures considered as moral agents in their exercises and conduct, both internal, all the thoughts and motions of their hearts, and external in their outward conduct and behavior. So in a word, it respects the heart or will in all its motions and exercises. It's the rule of every moral agent in all places and all times. It does not leave him at liberty to act without regard to this law in any one instant so long as he exists a moral agent. And this is a most perfect rule. It is neither too strict nor too lax. It does not require too much or too little in any instance, but points out and prescribes what is exactly and perfectly fit and right in all cases. There is no medium in this case between right and wrong, virtue and sin. Moreover, let it be particularly observed that this rule is the law of God. It is the voice of God to His creatures. It is His command and the rule which He Himself has set up and therefore it is clothed with His authority. A law always supposes a legislator who has right and authority to make such a law and issue such commands. And the law is attended or clothed with the whole of His authority. All His right and His power to dictate and command. Any law is binding and has force just in proportion to the degree and authority of the legislator has over those to whom He gives law and the right He has to command. Where there is no authority, there is no right to dictate or command anything. The law of God is therefore clothed with infinite authority. Even all the authority He has over His creatures to dictate and command. It may be truly and safely said that God cannot make a law which shall be attended with less 
authority. Less than even all the authority He has. As it is impossible, He should be divested of it or lay it aside in any instance or in the least degree. That He has authority that is infinite or beyond all bounds or limits is most certain. God Himself is infinite in His being and greatness, in His excellence and worthiness, in His superiority to the creature, and so in His right to dispose of and dictate to them. If that which gives Him authority or where His authority consists to be infinite, then the authority itself is infinite. That is, it is so great that it is beyond all limits and is infinitely more and greater than the authority of any finite being can possibly be. Hence, the law of God becomes infinitely binding. And the violation of this law in the least instance may be truly said on this account and in this view to be infinitely wrong and so the crime of it to be infinitely great. This law of which I am now speaking consists in two main branches. One points out our duty to God and the other our duty to our fellow creatures and to ourselves. This is all contained and expressed in the law of the Ten Commandments given to the children of Israel by God from Mount Sinai and afterwards written by God Himself on two tables of stone and laid up in the Ark of the Covenant which was placed in the Holy of Holies under the mercy seat. The first four of these laws express our duty to God and the last six, our duty to our fellow creatures. And this law is all summed up in a most comprehensive manner by our divine Teacher in the following words, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself found in Matthew 22. The law of God then requires nothing but love. Love exercised in a perfect manner, in degree, and expressed in all possible proper ways. In this, the whole of the duty and obedience of moral agents consists. Well, let it be further observed that a penalty is connected to this law, which consists in a threatening to the disobedient. This is essential to a law. That rule which carries not in it a threatening to the transgressor is attended or clothed with no authority at all. No authority is expressed or exercised and therefore it has not, it cannot have the nature and force of a law. And this penalty must be exactly answerable to the authority of the lawgiver and the just desert of the transgressor. Therefore, the greater and more sacred the authority of the legislator is the greater and more dreadful the punishment threatened. This will be in proportion to the punishment for the crime, the crime of the transgressor of a law. If a legislator should unite a threatening to his law which is not answerable to his sacred authority and worthiness to be obeyed, and so not equal to the crime of the disobedience, he would therefore lay aside or divert himself of his own proper character by not asserting or acting upon it. 
Therefore, the penalty, the penalty of the law of God must be infinite. The punishment threatened to the sinner must be an infinite evil. Something infinitely great and dreadful as the dignity, majesty, and authority of the lawgiver are infinite. Things less than this would be infinitely too little for the Most High God to threaten and infinitely too mean and low for Him to threaten sin against Himself with a finite evil only would be in effect to dethrone Himself and renounce His proper character and authority. Well, on the whole, it appears from what has been observed that the law of God requires perfect, persevering obedience on pain of eternal damnation. I say on pain of eternal damnation, for as the punishment is an infinite evil, it must be eternal. As an infinite evil cannot be inflicted on a finite subject in any limited or finite duration. No less than this is comprised in the curse of God, which is denounced against everyone who does not persevere in perfect conformity to His law. For it is written, says Paul, speaking of this law, cursed is everyone that continues not in all things which are written in the book of the law and to do them. This punishment, this infinitely dreadful evil and not separation of soul and body or annihilation is intended by the death which Paul says is the wages of sin. Romans chapter 6. And is the same law that was threatened to our first parents if they should transgress God's law. Genesis 2. This is the proper death of a moral agent. Even a separation from all good unto all evil and that forever. For it is not consistent with the being of a moral government that the subjects of it should ever cease to be. This, I think, may easily be proved. But I have not time for it now. We may be sure that God will not release any moral agent from His obligation to this law as it is most certain He cannot do it consistent with His character as moral governor of the world. This law, therefore, stands firm as a mountain of brass or as the pillars of heaven. It stands forever. The same most perfect and glorious law, sure and unshaken as the kingdom of God itself and will no sooner be removed. For to remove this is to destroy God's moral kingdom. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away or be dissolved than for one tittle of this law to fail. The righteousness of it is everlasting and God hath founded it forever. Psalm 119.144 This law cannot be repealed, set aside, or abated, nor the precepts of it. For nothing is required by what is perfectly proper and right, nor the penalty. For this is an essential part of the law and is perfectly equal and right. And to set this aside in whole or part is just so far to destroy the law and even to contradict and efface the divine character as has been shown. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ did not, therefore, come into this world and assume the character of mediator in order to get this law repealed or abated as many have absurdly and wickedly believed and taught. 
So far from this was His design that He came to magnify the law and make it honorable, agreeable to the ancient prediction concerning Himself. And in this, His atonement and righteousness consist by which sinners obtain pardon and salvation through Him. He warned all against such a false notion as this when He first entered on His public ministry. Think not, says He, that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. The law was indeed in the way of the sinner's salvation, and this was the ground of the necessity of the incarnation, His sufferings, and obedience of the Son of God. This was not to take the law out of the way by setting it aside, but to fulfill it, to obey it, and to suffer the penalty of it instead of the sinner, so that the law might be as much regarded and honored as if the curse had fallen on the sinner, and so that God, the supreme lawgiver, might be just, just to His own character and law, and yet justify the ungodly, the infinitely guilty and ill-deserving sinner who believes in Jesus. The unbeliever, the Christless sinner, is as much under the law and curse as if Christ had not come into the world and there had been no mediator between God and man. He who does not believe in Christ is not so united to Him and in Him so that His merits and righteousness which consist in what He did and suffered to maintain and honor the law may be properly imputed to Him or reckoned to His account. He is under condemnation. And the wrath of God and the curse of His law are as much upon Him as if there had been no Savior. Now for the Christian, Christ indeed has made atonement for all their sins against this law which they have committed or ever shall commit. And so has delivered them from the curse of the law, being Himself made a curse for them. So that they are in this sense. Romans 6, verse 15. Not under the law, but under grace. They are not under the curse of the law, nor exposed to the infinitely dreadful punishment threatened, but they are completely delivered from this by a free pardon. Let us consider now the second point. Point number two. Why? And in what sense the knowledge of this law of God is necessary in order to have the knowledge of sin. Here the matter is so very plain that there is no need to say but little in order to make it sufficiently evident. If this law is the rule of man's conduct, of all his exercises and behavior, so that he is sinful or not just in proportion as he conforms to this law or does not, then he cannot possibly judge his own character and determine whether he is a sinner or not if he is perfectly ignorant of this law. He must be ignorant of his own sinfulness, however great a sinner he is, just in proportion to the degree of his ignorance of the law he is under. Sin is the transgression of the law. Therefore, where there is no law, there is no sin. He who has no apprehension or knowledge of law has no idea of sin, and it is impossible he should. 
Every person's notion, every person's notion of sin will be according to his notion of the law. If he thinks God's law requires that which it does not, he will judge that to be sin, which in truth is not so. If he thinks the law he is under does not require what it really does, he will look upon that to be no sin, which in truth is sin. So far as he sees not the ground and reasonableness of the law, he will be ignorant of the crime or real sinfulness there is in transgressing it. And if he is ignorant of the excellence, worthiness, and authority of the lawgiver, and so sees not the excellence and glory of the law, he must be blind to the true wickedness and odiousness of sin and can have no true idea of it. Whatever knowledge of the law and of sin the unregenerate sinner has, it does not imply in any true sight and sense the excellence of God's law or the real hatefulness of sin, for they do neither love the law nor hate sin, but on the contrary, they approve of sin in their hearts and love it and heartily oppose God and His law. As they are blind to this most important and essential article, they may truly be said not to have the knowledge of God or of His law or of sin. Therefore, the Scripture represents them of not knowing God or the things of the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Only the born again have the true knowledge of the law of God and of sin, and it is in this light of God's holy law that they see sin to be what it is. They can therefore all say with Paul in our text, I had not known sin, but by the law. Well, now I proceed to make some useful remarks and reflections which with this subject we have been attending to naturally suggest. There are three remarks. The first being the longest. What has been said on this subject may help all who are inquiring to determine whether their religion is of the right kind or not. Does your religion have at its foundation in the knowledge of God's law? Has this given you the knowledge and conviction of your own sinfulness and the dreadful state you are in as a sinner? A person may have a great deal of concern about his soul and his eternal state and have a great deal of religion such as it is and yet be quite ignorant of the law of God and so have no true conviction of sin. This seems to have been the case with the young man who came to Christ with this important question, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? He appeared to be greatly engaged about his eternal interests but at the same time manifested himself to be quite ignorant of the law of God and so of his own true character. Well, many others have appeared to be in great terrors and distress about their souls and their future state for a time who have had no true conviction of sin by the law. They are not able to give any distinct and intelligible account of the ground of their concern. There have been many of this sort in times of great and general awakening and solemn attention to the things of religion, they, by hearing terrifying preaching, or by seeing others in great distress about their own souls, or from some other cause, are themselves terrified with fears that they shall go to hell. 
But if they are examined, they cannot give a rational account about the matter, and all their apprehensions about sin and hell seem to be confused and imaginary. After they have continued in their terrors for a while, they receive light and comfort, as they call it. And this is confused and imaginary as their preceding terrors were. It is all without any true knowledge of the law, sin, the character of the mediator, and the way of salvation by him. It is no wonder that the religion which has such a foundation and beginning issues in mad enthusiasm or a careless immoral life or both. But let us consider the inquiry. Has the law come? And in the light of this, have you seen your own character and been convicted of sin? Have you been convicted that you are nothing but sin, guilt, and vileness? That you are by nature totally corrupt and wholly without any good thing. All who have the knowledge of God's law fall under this conviction. Those who have never seen themselves in this light have not been truly convinced of sin and are ignorant of themselves in a degree which is inconsistent with true religion. Have you been brought to see and feel yourselves holy? W-H-O-L-L-Y holy to blame for everything in you that is not perfectly conformed to God's law or for everything short of perfect holiness? Do you know that you have no excuse for not obeying God's law perfectly? Has it become easy and natural for you to take all the blame yourselves? Many appear not to have been brought to this and so have not come to the true knowledge of their sinfulness. They say, we can do nothing of ourselves. We are poor weak, impotent creatures and can do nothing any farther than God assists by His Spirit. And although this is true in a sense, yet they evidently speak of this as some excuse for their not being perfectly holy and not living a high degree by the exercise of faith and holiness. Such excuse makers do not have a true knowledge of God's law. They have not been convinced of sin as God's people are. The true Christian takes all the blame to himself for everything in him that is contrary to God's law or that is short of perfect holiness. He sees and owns his obligation to be perfectly holy and condemns and takes shame to himself before God constantly for everything wherein he falls short of coming up to the most perfect and excellent rule of righteousness. Has the law of God slain you so that you have found it to be unto death? Have you found yourself justly under the curse of this law, deserving eternal damnation? Has it killed all your hopes of recommending yourself to God in the least degree by any of your own virtue and doings and cured you of all such attempts? Paul says it was with him. I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, Sin became alive, and I died. It's Romans 7, verse 9. Thus it is with every true Christian. Do you, like the law of God, considered in all its strictness and whole extent, love it and delight in it as holy, just, and good? Can you say with the psalmist, Oh, how I love thy law! It is my meditation all the day. This is the character of every good man. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And in His law, He meditates day 
and night. Are you disposed and ready to justify God in making such a law and maintaining it in a manner as He does? Do you revere? Do you love? Do you honor the character of the deity hereby exhibited to your view? And does the love to this law which Christ has manifested and His disposition and zeal to maintain and honor it, though it cost Him His life, greatly recommend Him to your esteem and love? It was this that recommended Him to the Father as it is written in Hebrews chapter 1, Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even Thy God, has anointed You with the oil of joy above Thy fellows. And it is this that recommends Him to every true Christian. And His excellency chiefly consists, and this consists His merit and righteousness in which the believer trusts for pardon and acceptance with God How evident and certain it is then that he who does not understand and love the law of God does not see Christ's excellency, nor know wherein his worthiness and righteousness consists. Therefore, he does not love him nor trust in him. Do you long for? Do you seek and strive after conformity to this law? Is the rule you keep in view as the measure of all your exercises and conduct? Do you know and feel that you cannot be perfectly happy in any other way or in any attainment short of this? This is most certainly true of every Christian. Such not only love the law of God and seek conformity to it, but as their happiness, the heaven they are seeking for, in their view, consists chiefly in this. Do you grow in a sense of your own sinfulness? This is always the case with the true Christian who have the knowledge of sin by the law. As they increase in a discerning and sense of excellency and glory of the divine character, they see more and more of their own true character as sinners and are hence led to see more of the depth, the strength, and the extent of wickedness in their hearts as it discovers itself in various actings. They are continually making progress in discoveries of this kind and growing in a sense of the sinfulness of sin. They see more and more of its infinite odiousness and ill desert. There are many professing Christians who walk and act as if they thought they had finished with conviction of sin as soon as they become Christians. All the conviction of sin they have any notion of is something which preceded their supposed conversion. And since then, they have had very little sense of sin or concern about their own sinfulness. It is not true with true Christians. It is not true with the Christian. Therefore, while the hypocrite or the professor who is not truly converted is bloated, lifted up, and proud, and grown in high esteem of his own excellence and attainments, being ignorant of his own true character, the real Christian is quite the opposite. As he makes advances in the knowledge of God, and His law. He is constantly growing smaller and ill-deserving in His own eyes and seeking down in a growing sense of His own infinite vileness. He views Himself as all over-defiled and abominable. He is abasing and repenting in dust and ashes. Repenting towards God and flying to Christ in whom is His righteousness. The second remark 
This may serve as a matter of awakening and warning to impenitent, Christless sinners. The strictness, the extent, the importance, the unchangeable excellence and glory of the law you are under and which you have broken, and the infinite dreadfulness of the punishment included in the curse of it conspire to admonish you of the sad and dreadful case you are in. How many and how great your sins must be. You have hitherto done nothing but transgress this law in all your exercises and conduct. The number of your sins is so great it exceeds all accounting. How amazingly aggravated are all your sins which have been committed under such light in the offers of the most wonderful mercy. What amazing wrath and vengeance hangs over your heads continually. And consider the impossibility of your escaping in the way in which you are now going. The law of God will not, cannot be set aside. It must have its course through you. And thousands more must perish and dreadfully forever. Oh, be entreated to consider yourselves and take warning and flee from the wrath to come. There is but one possible way of escape, even flying to Jesus Christ the Mediator, who has been made a curse that He might deliver from it all sinners who fly to Him for refuge. This One who rose again from the dead as an acceptable sacrifice unto God. He is now with open arms invites you to come and put your trust in Him for pardon and salvation. If you will hearken to Him, He shall be made of God unto you wisdom, even righteousness, sanctification and redemption. He will be as a hiding place from the wind and safety from the tempest. Isaiah 32, verse 2. Then you may say, then you may say with confidence and joy, in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. For in the Lord shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. A third and final remark. Let us all be henceforth excited to attend to and to study the law of God with application to ourselves. This is the law which is written on the heart of every Christian in the knowledge and view of which he exercises himself in Christian holiness. This is the rule of his life and in the light of this, he sees his own natural face and is humble and exercises faith in Christ and every Christian grace. And so far as the law of God is overlooked and neglected, just so far is all true Christianity overlooked and lost. Let us then carefully and constantly look at this perfect law of liberty and continue therein. If in this way we are not forgetful hearers of the Word, but doers of the work, we shall be blessed in our deeds. A final two thoughts. Sinner. The law of God will not be set aside. It will have its course through you. Have you a knowledge of your sins against a holy God? Fly to Christ, the Mediator, for all forgiveness. Put your trust in Him for a full pardon. And beloved Christian, fly again with a believing look to the Mediator who has been made a curse for you. Marvel again at the salvation that is yours. In Christ. Let's pray together.